It shouldn't be surprising that there is a new passion for finding new ways to live, creating communities and ecologies that will support the kind of life we imagine is possible. But it isn't easy. As intentional communities create their visions, they face familiar challenges. Building a shared living space that respects an individual's passion and growth while harmoniously supporting mutual values and mission. Surviving practically and financially when the motivating energy isn't about making money. What could new models for collaborative living look like? In this conversation, Aviv Shahar is joined by author, consultant, and Emmy award-winning documentary film director, Tucker Walsh, for a closer look at the rise of new intentional communities. Join us now for The New Intentional Communities. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. Welcome to Portals of Perception. I'm here with Tucker Walsh. Tucker visited with us a year ago, and this last year felt in some way as though we have gone through a wormhole. Feels like 20 years in one. So it's good to catch up. Uh, Tucker, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be back here. So there are several spaces that I want to explore with you, and there may be several spaces that you would be interested to explore with me. Where would you like us to begin, or do you prefer to perhaps offer an overview of the five-year journey, the last 12 months journey, and the last few weeks journey within the last 12 months since we've spoken last, or is there another place you'd want to go? Well, I know that you grew up in a kibbutz. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Yes. yes. Yeah. So I did not grow up in that type of a setting, but I did grow up in um, going to a very small private school from preschool all the way through ninth grade. So for most of my childhood, I had there was less than 200 people in the entire school. And it's like, a, it became a family to me. And I feel like in much of my adult life, I've been searching for that deep sense of tribal connection that I had as a child. And what feels alive for me to share is where I'm at in that journey of um, discovering tribe and what even tribe means to me as an individual. And then also my, I would call it my anthropological research across planet earth over the past few years and looking for and mapping out and really trying to get a pulse on where the evolution of community, intentional community living is going to go as a species, as we enter this 
time of unfolding both crises and an incredible opportunity to evolve into an entire new way of being as a species. And I just feel delighted and honored to speak with somebody who's actually lived that experience uh, himself. And I would be actually really curious if there's anything that you'd like to share about that, that might initiate where we go from there. Yes, that's a wonderful um, place to begin. So I suppose, I don't know that I'd start in, in the kibbutz experience. It's fair to say I was born and raised in a kibbutz for the first 17, 18 years of my life. And then I went to the Air Force, as we discussed in our initial call. And I've then been on a quest, and which developed alongside in parallel to my, first of all, the, the time in the Air Force, and then now for 40 years, and a central element of that has been engagements with various intentional communities. So, and I'm just coming out of a, uh, an event this weekend where I led uh, with uh, a large group of global, so this is not a residentially co-located in one place, but a global virtual community. And I am in the liminal space because we are regathering for, for a three-day, full-days event in this weekend. And so to the degree that, and the space we explored this last weekend touched on this sense of how, how do you stay tethered in yourself, in the inner presence of the flow and glow of what your life is about and engage inside a, a, the, the, the interaction and the living exploration of a community. This, this was an important dimension of this last Saturday and will in a different way be part of the event I'm heading to uh, this weekend. So I imagine there will be elements of it that will appear. What I intuit is maybe to invite you to speak first to a paragraph you wrote to me in an email last week. So that may be an entry point because you wrote what I've been, you said, what I've seen particularly in my anthropological studies of intentional communities these past few years is how hard it can be to actualize into concrete form and even more difficult into a relatively harmonious and functioning collective offering. So it's like there is a book in this paragraph (laughs) and I'd be keen for you to talk to that and reflect on that. And then whatever is relevant from my experience, we can bring into the conversation. Yeah, there's so many different paths from that one paragraph that arise for me right now. And, you know, so I just moved to Austin, Texas this past week, and I'm now living in what I many would call the conscious creators capital of the world and certainly of America. This is the city where a lot of people who spend time in intentional communities have then come to ground back in modern America. And here in Austin, there's a lot of communities. There's a lot of, um, there's some plant, plant medicine, entheogen churches. There's some, there's like endless amounts of yoga classes and ecstatic dances and different types of meetups. And one thing that I've 
felt sadness around just in my personal experience of this so far is how much of it is still tied up directly in the capitalistic model. You know, like you go to a yoga class and you basically pay for community for one hour and then you have to leave because the class is over and you got to get out because we have another class coming in. And it's just such a different mindset and model around what community is than the intentional communities that I've been so blessed to have lived in, helped to form, helped to create around the world. And, you know, I mapped out about 150 places and I can share that link in the in the show notes. And of those 150, maybe 50 of them are actual full-time intentional communities where people live. And of those 50, maybe 30 of them have been around for more than a year or two. And the reason why that kind of shocks me is because I've met literally thousands and thousands of people now that have expressed a, I would call it a burning desire to live in a new way, to live in some form of intentional living. And it just seems like when I talk to people, their faces light up. It almost feels like I'm speaking directly to their soul when when this topic comes up. And so out of thousands and thousands of people in this growing movement, it's just surprising to me that there's really only a couple handfuls of examples that are actually out there of sustainable, you know, by sustainable, I don't necessarily mean environmentally sustainable, but in terms of like, they've actually walked the walk for a number of years and have a solid foundation uh, to which their organization and their community can stand on. And my sense is that in the coming decade, in this next decade, we're going to have a conversation in 10 years from today, there's going to be thousands and at least many hundreds, if not many thousands of these communities that exist all over the world. And I sense that actually COVID is the, the greatest catalyst for that shift. People just went into the extremes of social isolation, which they were already facing previously. And ever, so much of life went online and uh, so much of work became remote. And so not only the psychological and physiological health suffering <laughs> needs have been exponentially exacerbated, but also the possibility and the flexibility and even just the shift in mindset that people have around community has drastically altered in just, what, two years, which is pretty incredible. And so we're in this weird liminal time with intentional communities where there's not really a lot of examples of places that have done it quite well. And I've had the blessing of interviewing a lot of these people for a project that I'm working on. And it's hard work. You know, they'll be the first to say that often it's not fun. <laughs> there's no money in it. It often, you know, people come and go, there can be huge blow ups. And so there's like a, a million and one reasons to not necessarily feel inspired to want to start a project, especially if one's coming from a, you know, entrepreneurial mindset of, you know, we need to create something quick and fast and easy that will make a lot of money. This is basically the opposite of that. And simultaneously at the exact same time, there's all the ingredients for an explosion of new possibilities for how we can come together and live outside of this pay for the one hour of yoga for $20 and then get out and that's your community experience for the day or go online and have a group Zoom call, which you know I certainly feel and I know most of the people around me are pretty burnt out from that form of connecting even though it's been quite a miracle as well to have that technology in this day and age. 
So let's retrace some of the threads there and even slow the conversation down and, and go deeper. At the highest level, you are describing, you're intuiting, you're seeing that we are going through some profound shift globally, humanity at large. Here at Portals, we call it the epochal shift. We've been tracking different aspects of it. And within that, you are, Tucker, identifying what you are observing to be perhaps one of the most central enabling catalyst traces, which is how do we humans get together to work together, to live together, to create ecologies together that will produce the kind of life that we imagine is possible. And you're seeing the desire, the sole desire for that in literally hundreds and thousands of people. So let's just stay with that first. If you need to try to codify language, what is it that people desire? What is it that people hope for? What is the deepest impulse? Let's first try to codify language that. Then we can go into some of the places you visited and what you found that was working well and was perhaps sustaining and, and inspirational. But first, what if you need to codify language? Because I, I bet there are different yeah. flavors and dimensions there. So what is it? How would you describe it? What is it that people are yearning for? So imagine waking up and you hear animals outside and you just wake up to nature and you have just direct immediate access to nature and to a landscape that is not just, um, you know, a plot of woods that you kind of queer cut and built your house next to, but you're actually living embedded in the actual nature. And there's a regenerative mindset of this piece of land is my home and I want to leave it better than how I found it. And so you wake up into a place that you already feel invested in just the physical, the literal and metaphysical and uh, metaphorical ground that you are standing on is a place that you feel deeply invested in and you have given your life force energy to help cultivate and nourish. And so you wake up and you already feel grounded <laughs> and then you go outside or you go down to the kitchen and there's some of the people that you feel so deeply connected to. These aren't just neighbors that you you know say hello to when you're going out to the mailbox or you know you ask them if you could borrow their lawnmower these are people that you know on a deeply intimate level you know their shadow you know their light <laughs> you know their stories you know their traumas and that also creates a sense of safety the sense of okay i feel you know i feel like if there's something that comes up for me i don't need to call a therapist or you know go to the hospital or whatever there's like something that can be done right here, right now with the people that I'm with. And then from that, it's this sense of like you walk outside and you have like infinite possibilities for connection and contact. And so you have different neighbors, you have different activities that are happening, you have different people that are serving and bringing their gifts to the community. And it's all just kind of happening like in, almost inside of a beehive. It's not necessarily you know, it's, you can actually directly experientially sensorially touch, taste, hear it, feel it. And it's all happening in this place that is buzzing with aliveness. And then there's, you know, you 
sit down and you can break bread and you can have meals and you can all come together and cook and all the different tasks, the cleaning, the gardening, the childcare, it's all done from, and it can all be done in a communal way. Of course, there's ways to also, you know, eat alone or to not be around people or to just have a single family home within this larger community. But I'm giving a flavor of one possibility. And so when you have all this ability to share let's call it the survival task of daily life with one another. It's no longer, you don't need to go to work for, you know, and break your back (laughs) doing a job that you don't love. So you can pay a cleaning lady or a cleaning person to come and clean your house or a gardener to do the, the lawn work. You can now actually do that together as an exercise of creating connection and communion with one another and with the work that you're actually doing to create the beautiful home that you're all co-creating together. So it's almost like you're living more in an art piece than you are in a mechanicalized world where you kind of pay and trade for different services that have more or less little to no value on a soul or emotional level for you. And what's her name? Marie Kondo talks about, you know, if you pick up an item and, and you don't really feel much when you look at the item, then toss it, you don't need it. And it's almost like intentional communities sort of take that to the extreme and the examples that I've seen, which is that every aspect of the community can only be there because there's a desire for it to be there. (laughs) There's some heart and soul that goes into every building, into every plant, into every structure, into every meal, into every event. And it actually feels like people are creating the world that they want to see come into existence, not the world that they have sort of been forced to inhabit because of societal conditions and that level of empowerment of ownership of actually being a creator in your own reality creates an incredible life force energy that can't really be described with words but i'm sure everyone has felt that in certain moments of their lives so <laughs> it's very curious what this is evoking for me it immediately evokes for me the the visionary picture you are describing which part of which i have live to experience more than once. Uh, certainly in the idealistic uh, experience of being raised in a kibbutz, even though in a very different time, and, and I can make a comment about that in, in a few minutes, but what it evokes for me are the obstacles, the challenges, the fault lines. The first being, indeed, the paradigm of the modern world where there is a question, so how will this project support itself and what will be its way to create its own economical surplus challenge number one and challenge number two within challenge number one is the distributional sharing dynamic that's developed around that and again obviously i have the experience of the kibbutz where that was a shared economy and was very powerful for a time and then became part of its problem. But then there is the third challenge, which is cultural and value-based because it is at two levels. I'd describe it as challenge three and, and challenge four, which is different people will have different priorities and different importances and some love more the yoga class and some love more the, the organic farming and some love much more the social justice issue, and some love much more the artistic 
dimension and how do you facilitate an ecology that will enable to those different preferences and different areas of passion and then build into it. That's the fourth dimension when it comes to political differences. And we seem to be able to converge and cohere at the high idealistic aspect of the highest element that we imagine. The, the breakdown often occurs in those, what I call the middle space of where we live our, our lives. And the fifth challenge, just to give you kind of a chance to respond to the whole, the whole enchilada, one of the unique elements of the kibbutz story in Israel was how the kibbutz movement emerged when Israel was re-establishing the country before the founding of the modern state of Israel, but on the premise and the vision of liberating the land. So, curiously, Tucker, the, the impulse of the kibbutz was different to what you now see in many intentional communities where the initial impulse is to do with people that are seeking their own personal liberation and personal development, which and then leads you back to this shared inquiry. In the kibbutz case, there was a missionary dimension, which was rescuing the Jewish people, escaping my parents, my father escaping Europe in the Second World War with his two parents and three of his brothers and sisters going down in Auschwitz. Building the kibbutz was, we will build a new world, and this will be our revenge, that we will actually, life is going to win. And so it was very much that driver. And so indeed, within a two or three or four decades, the challenge and the caught-up syndrome for them for the kibbutz, and sometimes I need to explain what the caught-up syndrome is, but uh, in the simplest way, it's that we catch up to our intention, that we have fulfilled our intentions and we no longer have intentions that propel us beyond the frontiers that we used to explore. And that's one of the ways communities crumble because we go into interpersonal conflict and a lot of drama because everybody is so highly aware in the interpersonal space, because these are developed people, as you said, they do their shadow work and their light work, guess what? They may be the most susceptible to the interpersonal drama because they are so highly activated in this space. So just uh, throwing some challenges your way, what have you seen? How uh, are those communities that you encountered addressing those four or five challenges? Yes. So... Excellent questions. The vision that I laid out previously was what I would call a utopian vision of what daily life at these intentional communities could be like. And, you know, utopia gets a bad rap and I don't mind it. I feel that it can be a very beautiful archetype to use as an imaginal sort of blueprint of this future possibility that we can grow and evolve and sort of be pulled by the heartstrings to get closer and closer to. And in many ways, that vision can help us overcome a lot of challenges and perseverance and how the perseverance it takes to get there. But the reason why I'm in a sterile room in Austin, Texas, that is a crazy amount of money to rent and not living at one of these many intentional communities that I've traveled all over the world living at is because 
this is a very simplistic way to put it. So I'm going to speak in somewhat black and white language, but I'm doing so just for the sake of simplicity. A lot of these communities are attracting people who want to go there to heal. And so they're communities that are primarily built around healing. And what that essentially means is that it's going to be more or less a shit show of emotional processing and conflict and interpersonal challenges. And that is both beautiful and some of the most extraordinary moments of my life have happened in those contexts and containers. But there's a point at which that's not really the center of gravity or the main orienting intention that I personally want to live within. It can be very emotionally draining to be in a place where healing and healing and healing is constantly the thing that everyone is eating and sleeping and breathing all the time. So my curiosity and my question and some of the projects that I'm working on are around how can we create community that attracts people that have in some capacity proven that they have the that they've had the emotional resilience, the emotional tools, the emotional foundation to actually live in a community that is orienting towards something different. Now, there's monastic communities that are out there. I spent a lot of time at Maple in Vermont, for, which is a great example. But what about a community that doesn't necessarily have a traditional religion or a primary spiritual foundation? Could there be, for example, a community that orients around just celebrating the miracle of life and living together in a way that is ecologically and interpersonally and system from a political systems perspective in, a, in the most harmonious way possible? And there's a whole new breed, I would call them a new breed of um, communities that are popping up right now. They're actually more like intentional villages. There's one in Costa Rica called La Tierra. There's one in Bali called Nuanu that I'm personally working on. And there's capacity for up to two, 3,000 people to live at these places. And it's really more like creating a small town. And it's clear that these places are not necessarily attracting a healing culture, but they also are having all the, like, when you have kind of gone through that journey to some extent, of course, life is a constant healing journey. But when you've, when one has enough awareness around what that healing potential is and can be, there's ways to create systems and support and have aspects of the community that are just dedicated to that process without it kind of overtaking the larger intention of the community itself. And so those are the projects that I'm really excited about and they don't quite exist right now. They're, some are literally under construction, some are just visions, but I sense that in the coming years, these places are going to offer a whole new possibility for how to move past sort of the constant interpersonal conflict and into a place of more, how can we actually show up and be of service as sovereign individuals that also recognize that all of life is a relational process. So again, you are describing a movement that is in the early stages. We, you believe we are on the ground floor or, or just a, beyond that of what may become a large global movement with many such attempts and prototypes. And I, I don't want to lose the beautiful insight you framed at the beginning, which is that you have seen several communal endeavors where healing is the organizing principle. And you have also shared with me in the last few days, because we just published the Three Journeys article, mm -hmm. and one of your core comments there was, First, how you could map the entire journey through your own experience. 
And specifically, you reflected on how what we describe as journey one often has a healing nature to it. And that the trap, it's interesting, we in the article identified two primary traps, the identification trap and the intoxication trap. You are articulating in your insight something else that's inherent in that and perhaps need to be overtly mentioned. It's what you describe as somewhat the addictive nature of the healing process because there is something so stirring and moving and people love getting locked in the recycling nature of the healing process. But And what you're describing is how, and what you wrote to me was how this is nourishing for a certain period of time, but then it can become a trap like any other trap. And what you're now saying is, I want to see communities that are able to move beyond that, that are able to support a broader premise and larger attempts within which there may be pockets or ecologies that will still facilitate healing, but this is not the end purpose or the end goal of the endeavor. Yeah, my sense is that the concept of healing in my personal life will, I'm going to take a leap here and say, it'll never go away. It'll just be sort of contextualized as daily maintenance. So just like I need to get a good night's sleep, I need to wake up, I need to eat healthy food, get exercise. You know, I also need to do some internal shadow work on the daily, you know, if there's a moment where I feel activated in my system, where I notice my, my physical body is in a contracted state. If I notice I'm really having a lot of negative thoughts about someone in my life. Okay. Well, it's just sort of a, a maintenance. It becomes more like maintenance. It's just, I have the tools. I have the ability. I have the awareness of nine times out of 10, being able to kind of process through that on my own in a relatively effortless way where I don't feel that my external relationships, so to speak, become damaged or harmed in any overt way. And so my sense is that what happens is that a lot of people who feel like they have that ability to self-regulate then go and they serve in the healing community to others that want to also kind of learn those new processes and tools and and have that level of awareness. And if it still becomes like an amplification of the healing culture. In Austin, Texas, that's such a big part of the culture here. All the different events that I've been going to, there's a constant awareness and dialogue around trauma, around healing, around shadow work, around awakening. And and yeah, I just sense that there's a another, I mean, there's infinite ways, but there's other ways of orienting in a shared collective with people who still feel that healing is an essential part of their daily lives and still feel that doing the work, so to speak, is a part of the work of life, but are here maybe to operate more from a place of service, more from a place of celebration, more from a place of actually healing the external systems and the larger society and the larger structures that are that are in need of, of service as well, in addition to our ego structure and our psychological health. So the, right there, the last thing you said strikes me as, as an important dimension in the future you're painting. Because again, this is one of the learnings from the what worked well in the kibbutz, and I can also <laughs> reflect on all that was broken there. But what worked well, this was an endeavor, and is still an endeavor to an extent, that had a mission external to itself. 
when an effort, a, a communal endeavor finds a mission that's inclusive of itself but goes beyond it, it has a way of not catching itself up in the intersubjective drama that tends to uh, get amplified inside the endeavor. And it also offers that other vector or other octave that uh, brings into the equation the sense of renewal. So when you said a community endeavor that will also take on as part of its endeavor, its service to the larger region or societal issues around, if there is a way to build shared agreements around that that are not superficial, but deeply internalized and and believed and, and embodied as part of the shared purpose, which is therefore the inquiry, how much should there be based on your experience, a sense of shared purpose and shared vision and shared mission? Or is it more an ecology with some shared agreements and a live and let live permission? There is a whole continuum and many shades in between, many gradients in between. Yeah. And I, you know, it's a big world and I think there's room for a little bit of everything. You know, just maybe one example I can give is... um, Here's sort of an A and B contrast is example A is you go and you play an ultimate Frisbee game at one of these intentional communities. And the purpose of the game is to, you know, have fun so that we can overcome our childhood wounds where we were not told that we could have fun as children. And so now we're being invited to play so that we can express ourselves freely and allow our inner children to you know, experience the joy that we didn't get to have in childhood. And so the framing of the ultimate Frisbee game is ultimately to heal our broken selves. Totally fine. Important. I'm glad that this exists. I'm not talking down about this in any way. I participated in literally hundreds, if not thousands of these types of examples. And it's been absolutely integral process to getting me to the place where I am today that is still a long way to go from many of the places that I envision myself in the future. But exhibit B or example B is you go and you play ultimate Frisbee because it's fun and because you get to just hang out on the grass and it's a sunny day and it's beautiful and why not? And life is short and we might all die tomorrow. So why don't we just celebrate the miracle that we're fucking alive and we can play Frisbee. We can like toss our arms like this and this little plastic thing can just fly through the air and we can go and we can chase each other and we can laugh and we can smile and maybe we can be injured and we can cry and somebody can come and they can help support us. And it's just life unfolding. It's just the dance of consciousness. And that, here's the grand paradox of it all. The irony is that for some people at some point in their journeys, that experience of just playing Frisbee to play Frisbee can be a much more healing than being stuck in the mental loop of there's something wrong with me. I need to fix myself. I need to do this and that in order to become something other than what I am right now. Because what I am right now is on some fundamental level is not okay. Right. So in in that example, it's not really a binary and it's not really a polarity. The the two ends of the Frisbee game or any other game can be integrated inside a greater whole. And I I think that's what you wrote... um, in your Medium article when you wrote about this idea of integrating the polarity of bonding and sovereignty, how we can be in bonding practices and and rituals and and ceremonies 
and we can choose to cultivate additional layers of uh, personal meaning and we can be inside it all and retain a sense of agency and, and sovereignty. All of that is part of the experience you're describing. Yeah. And um, from a slightly more, you know, it depends on like what depth we're speaking from. So from a slightly more elevated depth, perhaps we could say that, um, you know, to be in the healing mindset and then to feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me because I need to heal. But then feeling that there's something wrong with me and then I need to heal is what's also wrong with me is still playing into the same kind of mental trap that can become a loop that can be, you know, have a negative impacts basically and cause suffering. And so there's a point at which there can be just a relaxation into, well, maybe everything is okay, including the things that are not okay are also okay. And it can just kind of keep expanding out until there's just a sense of, and the the thoughts kind of drop. And then we're just here in this present moment. And from there, there's often an experience of, well, what wants to happen next? What's the next thing that wants to be created through me and as me and by me and for me and to be in a community where there can be different processes that are just inherently built into the fabric of the community, into the culture of, you know, working with what we feel is off or needs to change or needs to be fixed. And then just sort of accepting that as also part of the beauty and the perfection. And then there's sort of this, everything is being held by this deeper safety net of just unconditional love. And from that place, I just, there's, you know, infinite potentials for us to, to make art out of life. And that's what I'm really excited to participate in, to help create and to see what that would be like on a collective level. I've certainly experienced that moments of that on an individual level. And I've certainly been in collective experiences where that has been tapped into, but to actually create an intentional community built on the foundations of that mindset or that orientation or that way of being in the world, I think that'll be quite special. Life is out. Yeah. And, you know, I was just at Burning Man and that's sort of one of the sayings is life is art. And I mean, it was an incredible experience. And within that life is art, there's sort of a, there's a place in a time, within Burning Man rather, there's a place in a time for pretty much every type of relational experience that one could have is, is sort of possible at this place. And yeah, it's an interesting example of a short-term community that is doing something that I haven't experienced in a lot of places. But the question is whether those experiences are only possible because it has a set you know, duration of one week. And are you naming there in what you said a minute ago also that part of the potential shadow of intentional communities or the people that are often attracted to intentional communities, that part of the potential shadow is what perhaps, and this is not a judgmental language, but it's trying to name what you were describing, perhaps can be described as narcissistic woundology that loops back time and again into the pain. And if that's the case, what is the archetypal teaching about this and uh, how are we tr- to transcend that, that challenge? I don't know if I would frame it in that way, but I'm going to use your frame and play with it loosely. And what I would say is, first, I don't know. But secondly, is if there's actually a place to go after one feels like, okay, I'm in this intentional community that's primarily based around healing. I've 
been here for months or years and I'm ready to kind of grow my wings and expand and try something new, try something different. The challenge is where does that person go? I am that person. Where do I go? I'm back in Austin, Texas, and I bought stuff at Target and I'm you know, buying groceries at Whole Foods. I don't want to be back here. I, this is the part of the, the culture, the fast highways, the air pollution, all of these things that drove me to leave Los Angeles in the first place and go on this healing journey. And now I'm sort of back in the place where I started and it doesn't feel so great in my body and my system. And I, I don't feel as if I can, my sense or my intuition is that what I can do in Austin won't have as great of a potential or service or, or a way of creating the changes that I want to see in the world than it would be to actually create new communities where people can come and actually live, not just for a couple of years, not just for a couple of months or a couple of weeks, not just for a workshop, but where they can come and really put their life, blood, sweat, and tears into creating something that will last decades and centuries. And it's a place where maybe their great grandchildren can grow up and maybe we can even get back to a, place, a sense of place-based living where people think in multiple generations and not just in, you know, how can I get the most out of my one week retreat? And that's, that's like a big seismic shift and mindset. And I noticed my own body of, of somebody who's been nomadic and who's been the guy that's gone from retreat to retreat. There's a, a resistance to, and a sense of feeling like oh, I'm almost uh, shackling or enslaving myself into a place and into a way of being that I don't even know if I'm ready to experience. And yet at the same time, there's some voice that's coming from deep within my being and within my soul that is just it's hungry to devote myself to something. It's hungry to fall in love and to fully serve and to fully give my life to something larger than myself. And uh, I sense that one of the ways that can manifest is through community. So when you speak in this way about the, the decades and maybe centuries, that resonates very deeply because the way I hear this music that you just played there is you're now describing the holy grail of evolution. Let me put it in context why I say the holy grail of evolution, because we've gone from the ancient world where we were organized in tribal formations through major set of transformations through the, the modernity project. And some will describe this historic shift as a lot of bad things that happen, and I don't necessarily view that at all as the narrative. In fact, I see that one way to tell the, that epochal story is that as a species, we needed to go through the individuation journey. We needed to go through the individuation project because, and I reason, that we cannot enter universal life as tribal entities to really mature an adult into the universe as to discover our universal life, what we talk in, in portals about and the idea of homo universalis. We actually need to emerge into this realm, I believe, as individuated, self-electing, self-arising humans. So here is why I'm saying that what you're describing is part of the the holy grail of evolution. Because, so if that's the case, we now need to find a way 
to self-elect, self-arise into an, an ecology where we can co-elect after we self-elected, where we can co-arise after we doing and with our self-arising, such that we are able to coordinate into a mutualized evolution. The premise in that idea is unless we can do that, we can't really unlock the real, the fullest potential of Homo Universalis. So why this is an important narrative, an important reasoning? Because the moment you just said there, Takir, I envision us working perhaps the entirety of our lifetime to hand the baton to next generation, who will hand the baton to next generation, where we look to satisfy our personal needs and all that inspires us and so on, but we know that we are actually, we lost as humanity. This is a perspective we lost. We are now so much based in the short-termism of how can I gratify my desires today in an hour, in five minutes, and why not if Amazon can deliver it five minutes ago? But what you're describing is, can we engage in a deliberative, shared, co-evolving endeavor that will enable us to include our desires today and the needs and desires of our children and grandchildren and their grandchildren. And unless we actually do that, that's my premise, we will not find a way to unlock our fullest, highest potential. And also we are not likely to be able to encounter the major civilizational challenges. So there is an interesting integration here because what I'm proposing that unless we actually do the in- integration that you're inviting us into, the, the generational mission, we will not be able to fully satisfy even the here and now, the, the, the today, this week, this month. My premise is, I intuit that increasingly we are waking up to that consciousness. What says you? Yes, says me. (laughs) If I was to be fully honest, I don't often consciously have a thought that arises in awareness that says, I am doing this. I'm drinking this green tea. I'm talking to Aviv right now because I want my great, great, great grandchildren to benefit from this experience. But my senses and maybe a, a story I can tell that feels true for me to say is that I, it's almost like my body knows, or, you know, there's a divine intelligence certainly knows and maybe Tucker's body. And maybe there's a gut intuitive sense of this feels like it is going to be an experience that will open and expand and redirect life force energy into a way that will ultimately benefit all beings. And in a way, even in my deepest, most contracted states, that too is ultimately a part of that larger unfolding and that mosaic and that that process of perfection becoming more ever more perfect. And at the same time, on the human level, on the human experience, my sense is that there's a point in the journey where if one doesn't begin to kind of look out into that larger expanded timeline, not just for their own family and their own selves, but for humanity as a whole and for all living beings as a whole and ultimately for the cosmos as a whole it just life just doesn't feel as rich it's like eating food that you know maybe it's uh, a little bit old and it's not organic or whatever and it's just like that life force energy isn't fully there and maybe we're not even consciously aware of it but we can just feel it and intuit it and there's something about 
just the flow of energy that isn't fully there when there isn't a like a full opening to something that is beyond our mental conceptions, but we can sense it in our bones. So you're working with this vision in mind and you also have the lighthouse vision that's part of it or adjacent to it or integrated to it. How do the two co-inhabit um, or, or co-arise? Well, and your vision for intentional communities. Well, okay, so... The Lighthouse has two different directions that I'm orienting around right now. One is to create the first Lighthouse and actual intentional community so that it can be part of this larger unfolding. It could create a sense of a home within this home of the community, within the home of planet Earth, within the home of the cosmos. And then another is to actually, the original vision of it perhaps was to take the experience or the flavor or the feeling of what these intentional communities can offer in their best moments and to bring that back into the modern world, into the hearts of modern capital, capitalistic America and um, allow people to have both a place where they can return back from these experiences and integrate in a community of like-minded and like-hearted folks. And also to have people have a first stepping stone or a first access point to ways of living that are beyond anything they've experienced in their lifetimes. And so I sense that the, the latter vision that I just spoke about would be of great service to millions, potentially billions of people. And I can, by the reactions I've gotten when I've shared the vision with people is um, there's almost a sense of desperation that I feel from them. Of like, that's exactly what I feel my town and my city needs. And they're like, what can I do to help? And it's this you know, there's a sense of energy that feels uh, intoxicating. But when I tune into my own Tuckers, if I just kind of take the perspective of caring for Tucker and what will feel most true for his unfolding and evolution, I feel strongly that I'm still committed to living and raising a family and, and really settling down and rooting in at one of these intentional communities that I've spoken about today. And creating a lighthouse in the context of that type of a container to me feels like there's some magic there that I can just sense, I can feel, and I don't know what it will look like. And it might, it might be damn near impossible, but I want to give it a try. Let's just for a minute put um, the scientific, uh, sometimes I'll call it a, the forensic uh, magnifying glass on a specific element, which is the size of a group, the, the quantum. And I, in an earlier email, exchanged and wrote to you that I've observed 10 different quantums. And so I'm interested in the different prototypes that you imagine, what size of a group. Quickly, I'll run through those and, and be interesting to get your comments. So obviously, quantum zero is one person, just you or just me. That's when we're discovering the community within and we discover that to be effective, in the work with others, I actually need to honor the different voices, the different needs, and bring myself as an integrated whole rather than a fragmented, disembodied person. I find like the work I was doing this weekend with the community, we commented on how this is the dis-ease of the time, that very little do we see fully embodied human beings. So much of what we see is disembodied and fragmented, but that really any large vision that we hope to build, unless we can come into it, 
with that quantum zero, the, the one individual, each one of us, we are aspiring to stay tethered to the realms of blessing and well-being that we are never meant to be without unless we can do that, not perfectly, not without falling on our face, not without losing center of gravity, not without being activated, but increasingly finding the access to this realm. Unless we can do that, everything we do suffers because we show up in a fragmented way. So that's, I'd call this table stake, that's quantum zero. Quantum one is two players, often the romantic relationship, but not just any partnering endeavor and discovering just that when we come to people, like now the two of us, there are three spaces in the conversation. There is your space, there is my space, and there is the space in between. And then quantum two is when we have three players. Okay, that's when we are discovering really that it quickly gets compound when we have even the transition from two to three. And now we come to quantum three, which is four to six people, that these are the small pods, that it's easy to hold the conversation four or five or even six people. Sometimes it fragments in six people. That's what I call quantum three. And this awareness is very important in the work I do with global teams when we go on on a a several days event, how to facilitate and unlock their development. I'm very highly aware when I ask them to work in threes or in fours or in fives. If I ask them to work in groups of six, it changes the dynamic. Now we come to quantum four, which is seven to 12. And this, I believe, is very important in the research that you have gone through. I'm I'm interested what you will comment on that. Many, many communal endeavor never really break beyond that point, beyond the 7 to 12. Because that's where you begin to have layers and different layers of leadership and different center of gravities and different levels of commitments. So cultivating a shared endeavor in the 7 to 12, I call it, quantum 4 is becoming compound and quantum 5 is the 12 to 24. We still are able to hold the conversation and listen to everybody. And then you go into quantum 6, the 25 to 48. We can hold forums, but it really gets a lot more complex that leads you and that leads you to quantum 7, the 49 to 200, that's when we talk about stretching the Dunbar number beyond 150 to 200. This is the small kibbutz. The small kibbutz was able to get to 150 to 200 people. The large kibbutz is quantum eight, the 200 to six to 800. It's a small town like you were talking about. There, the institutions that we built the the way we still develop a shared culture, a shared intention, shared rituals and ceremonies, all these are very important. And quantum nine is what I describe as the 800, 2000 or 2500. These are really small towns. And ultimately, when you painted the lighthouse vision and you said, I want to use the infrastructure of America where in every town the there was the church or the synagogue that can become this place that people go to and recharge. This is what 
I found so compelling, you were all of a sudden describing something, a solution that can work all the way to quantum nine. So my question to you is, first, any comment on this? And where are you looking to develop the, the prototype? Because going there, the shift from 712 to the 12 to 24, to the 24 to 48, these are very meaningful leaps in terms of how do we retain a sense of shared behavior, shared agreements, shared vision, live and let live, and at the same time, somehow not losing the intention to a total impossible chaos of everybody pulling in a different direction. Yeah, beautiful. So obviously there's fractals of communities that are being created and disbanded every day, every moment of the day, and all of those holons all simultaneously. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's even a sense of losing a sense of self in the flow of the collective, which can be a beautiful process. And then coming into a, a group state of, of presence and coherence. And that can happen, you know, at a New York Yankees game. I remember that as a kid. I remember once it was like the bottom of the ninth inning and the the playoffs. And I think it was Derek Jeter had a game running shot and everyone was just in a state of pure ecstasy and coherence. And to see that many humans, I mean, I remember it now. And so that says enough, I think. Well, it says that even at that early age, something in you was already attuned to this mystery of collective coherence. What is this great mystery? Yeah. And you know, it's another tragic but beautiful example is 9-11. I was 11 years old when that happened. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. And just the sense of, you know, being in the grocery store and feeling like every human was focused on the same heartbreak and grief and anger. And there was just this shared experience that seemed to ripple out even beyond the borders of the United States. And these experiences can be extremely valuable for the human species to initiate itself through to realize that, oh, wow, this sense of, you know, individuality that we're normally oriented to um, isn't necessarily the only place that we can be as a species. In terms of the lighthouse... Well, so, but let me just, the bridging you offer there, because this is beautiful, you juxtapose it. Essentially, what you are saying in your vision, we humans should not just wait to, for cataclysmic tragedies to come together to discover our potential at coherence, it actually should be, we should reverse the figure in the ground. There has to be a way to live a life where we can celebrate and sense that not just in the extreme peak experiences of grief or joy, there has to be a way to build a structure and a life around it, which is why we are asking about those prototypes and the size of those prototypes and the science of cultivating those, because unless we are scientific, in approaching these, it is, I have studied and observed, not just born and raised in a kibbutz, studied and observed to the degree that I could, uh, many of the esoteric endeavors and communal esoteric spiritual endeavors of the last 150, 200 years. What made them work, where they failed, what made them successful and when? So uh, this is why I'm asking, how are you approaching this adventure? 
Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the Frisbee game, right? I mean, if you can just play Frisbee and not feel like you're trapped in your own sense of needing to heal or change and to feel like, oh, I don't need to prove myself to these other people because I'm just being held in this container of love and, you know, relatively unconditional acceptance. There can be this also this experience of just playing Frisbee and just losing yourself in the joy of the moment. And the Frisbee is just, it's like, we become the game that life is playing rather than we become characters playing a game in life. So just the orientation gets the foreground and background orientation basically reverses. And most of the time I sense most people are not even aware of this. Often I'm not even aware of it, but because there isn't really somebody home to be aware of it in those experiences, which is so beautiful. But then when we come back into a sense of self or individuality, there can be a recognition of like, wow, there is something really magical in that. And I want more of that. And so how can I find that, you know, ecstatic dances can be a wonderful place for that. And churches used to offer that. I didn't grow up going to church. So I'm speaking from a little bit of secondhand experience, but I, you know, I remember once I was in a church in Zambia and there was maybe 500 people in this very poor township probably half the people in the room were HIV or AIDS uh, positive and many were in the last moments of their lives. And I was just in that room and <laughs> in terms of feeling, you know, the Holy Spirit, as the Catholics might say, I mean, I felt it sure for sure there in that room, it was a sense of death is so imminent and it's where we're, we have such an awareness of the acuteness of death that life itself becomes a miracle. The fact that we're alive in this moment, even as we're dying, um, is even more of a reason to celebrate. And there's a, a shift in consciousness that's happening around the existential crises that are coming. And one way to potentially frame this, I'm not certainly not applying this as a as you know the only narrative or as a narrative that would work for everyone. But one way to frame that is, wow, you know, not only is my individual life you know guaranteed to end, but Potentially, the entire human experiment in the human species could come to an end, and certainly life as we know it might. And so what if we were to actually step into our most full humanness while we have it? <laughs> and uh, if we could create a container to not only grieve that process, but also celebrate the very fact that we can be a part of a process like that, that to me is one of the many different uh, doorways that people can find themselves in a lighthouse and in that experience. And, you know, I sense there's something about the size of the lighthouse orienting, you know, if there's um, different bands of people that are there and there's maybe a core group where it maybe falls in the 20 to 50 range. And then there's a kind of secondary group that maybe they're there a little bit less frequently, but people kind of get to know their faces. Maybe that's a hundred, 200 people. And then potentially of the terms of supporters, there could be a couple thousand total. And these are people that maybe come once a season or donate money or part of the online groups. And so I see that there's room for many different types of these um, containers within the larger containers. And, and my sense is that, yeah, kind of playing and dissolving those borders. So when we're all together in the church and we're in a ceremony or we're in a, we're going through a, a moment of grace, there's an experience of it doesn't matter, you know, who you are on the hierarchy of the, uh, the breakdown of, you know, your position in this community. It's more of just the fact that you are a part of this present moment and part of this experience, and therefore it's holy and divine. And that's pretty much that. <laughs> and how are you approaching collecting and gathering the core group? 
How are you approaching that conundrum? Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm in Austin is because there's three or four projects that are very similar to the Lighthouse vision, although orienting from, I would say, you know, slightly different worldview or slightly different perspectives, or maybe there's a, a you know, slightly different foregrounding of certain aspects of these communities. But it feels like of all the places on planet Earth, there's a lot of energy that is coming around, was coalescing around this type of a, of a community that's sort of replacement for a church, a re-embracing of spirituality in its pluralistic form, while also having you know a ceremonial context where we're all in this one shared experience together to create that Yankee Stadium effect or, or that 9-11 effect. And, and so I would say at this moment, I'm apprenticing and I'm putting out feelers and I'm sharing the work with everyone and, you know, I'm getting plenty of offers to help, but I, at this point, it feels, um, it's almost like calling in the mother of my future children where I don't just want to kind of go out on dates with anyone. I'm being very selective. And I, when the person enters my life, there's going to be a person or persons, it's going to be a clear knowing and it's going to happen before I even have the chance to make it happen. It'll just organically unfold. That's wonderful. So I intuit a part two of our conversation at some point in the future where one of the main lines to further develop is the inquiry of leadership. What is the nature of leadership of these endeavors? And then we can also reflect on the various leadership styles and modalities that you have observed in different communities, what works, what doesn't work. This is a whole, a whole conversation by itself that I'd like us to circle back to but is there anything you want to seed on on this yeah well just the systems thinking aspect of all this in terms of governing structure in terms of conflict resolution in terms of leadership styles in terms of how to apply regenerative principles in an actual embodied you know living way both as a mindset and as a ecological practice i mean there is infinite portals to play with there and in a way I sense I have a great bird's eye advantage of all the possibilities, but I'm definitely not an expert in any one specific, say, conflict resolution process or governing structures or using DAOs and Web3 technology as ways to create community coherence. Um, a lot of that, I love that there's people that are just diving into the nitty gritty of that. And I feel like the piece that Tucker is... Um, has a sense of responsibility around holding is the, is the feel, it's the quality, it's the unspeakable that people are so deeply drawn to and willing to put their lives into a project like this. And it's more of the, yeah, it's more of like that feeling you have when you look at a really beautiful piece of art and you don't really know how to describe it. It's just paint on a canvas, but there's something about it that moves our spirit. And the community that I want to be a part of I want that feeling, that unspeakable, unnameable feeling to be the thing that we all cohere around. So one of the important discovery elements in this uh, five years nomadic anthropological research was getting to appreciate what is the unique dimension or element that you bring to the table and, and embracing more fully that that's yours to be, yours to do, yours to bring to life in this world. And one way you described that, perhaps in a, one other line in, in the email you wrote to me last week, was um, that part of what you feel called to do is help people feel at home in the universe. This is just a beautiful, poetic way of describing 
I am involved in a way of being and living that creates an ecology where people can feel at home in the universe. And when I reflected deeply on this line, I, it occurred to me that what you were describing was hitting right there, the very core of the confusion that many young people today are grappling with. Because the challenge for many people is discovering how you can be yourself, not as an act of excluding the universe, but how to become yourself as an act of being included and integrated by the universe by integrating and including the universe. So much of the desire for self-liberation and self-expression is an exclusion vector rather than an inclusion and integration vector. So uh, I thought that was very powerful for you to frame that, to name that. Yeah, thank you. That's just a direct expression of so many moments that I've experienced where in the exact wording is home is that feeling when there's no place in the entire universe I'd rather be than right here, right now. And there's something that can happen in that experience of just fully surrendering and being fully landed in the present moment, which is that there's a, a shift in perception where you realize, oh, wait, this is the entire universe. <laughs> this moment right here, right now is actually the entire universe expressing itself. And with that comes an ecstatic joy that even in the deepest moments of sorrow and pain and suffering can make life feel just like the greatest blessing and miracle that is ever imaginable. And if I can help both myself and others and all beings that are here in this present moment right here, right now, just be get 2% closer to tasting that, I feel that will be uh, a life worth uh, dying for. Well, when we can breathe in the luminescence of what you're describing, we become greater than the smaller selves that we sometimes mistakenly believe ourselves to be. And when we make that space and realize that we are not alone, and but rather are joined by others and by other realms that enhance the expression and the experience of life, everything is possible. Everything is possible. Well said. <laughs> Anything else uh, I'd seen you to say? You know, I just, I appreciate, there, there's sometimes when I speak about this stuff where I feel that I need to start with what are the problems, you know, what are the challenges in America, the opioid crisis, the suicide rates, the loneliness epidemic, and it's starting there and then it's getting to a place of landing where we just land and sort of the the cosmos unfolding itself in all of this, in this present moment. And I'm questioning in myself whether it's possible to just start at the end and then to build from there. And uh, that might be a fun place to play with with you in the future. That happened to be what I've done for a living for the last uh, two, three decades, helping people envision and create the future. And indeed, I follow the premise you just articulated, which is we create, we imagine the future and work backward. It doesn't mean we ignore the challenges of today. But we presence, we carry them, and we begin and we forever use the future inquiry as a siphoning, propelling mechanism uh, such that we do not clash 
just on the different interpretations of the problem. Yeah, exactly. And I, I sense why I feel so passionate about this work is, and you know, it's impossible to decouple this, but as a mental thought exercise, even if there wasn't a loneliness epidemic, and even if there wasn't all this, I would still desire this because there's something about it that is um, transpersonal. It's not just a human experience of living in community and connecting and playing Frisbee and living regeneratively. It's actually becoming, it's opening up ourselves and losing our, not losing, but um melting ourselves into something larger and community for me and my experience has been just the most delicious and intoxicating and often challenging way of creating this experience that has brought so much aliveness to my life and so it's really regardless of the challenges or not this still feels like the the light that is drawing me closer to it that is the definition of an immortal purpose because the moment you frame, so many people dis- define their purpose by something they fight against. And I respect that. But I always ask, what will you do when the very thing you fight against is conquered? What will be your purpose then? And what you just said is, even if there was no problem to solve, I would still be embarking on the journey to build greater halls and greater sh- uh, sense of shared purpose and endeavor where human beings go beyond coordinating to really work together on birthing the, the greatest and finest possibilities for their life and for generations to come. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Takia. It's a pleasure as always. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.